You guys remember a long time ago, this used to be Sunday school on the book of Job? You remember that? So let's, uh, let's get reacquainted with our friend Job. Please take your Bible and turn to the book of Job, chapter 36. And we're going to resume after a number of weeks of me being out of town and kind of non-traditional weeks, grateful for uh, those that have filled in. Um, <laughs> the next several weeks, I hope, are going to be really fun and exciting in Sunday school because we're going to we're going to take a number of themes in the book of Job that we've waved our hands at along the way, and we're going to go back and, and sort of build messages around some of those themes. The book of Job is one of those things that addresses so many different topics that uh, we want to stop and, and smell the roses, so to speak, every now and then. And so that's what we're going to be doing in the coming weeks. And as I was going back over um, this section on Elihu, there was one little verse that caught my attention, and it ended up turning into a message. But uh, for those of you that haven't been here, or maybe uh, it's been a long time enough, you're thinking, what's Job, and what's this book called Job, and, and all that? Um, the book of Job is really about three themes. The theme of worship, which revolves around the character of Satan. The theme of suffering, which revolves around the character of the, the three friends, um, Job's three friends. And then the theme of justice, God's justice, which revolves around uh, Job himself. Um, the idea is, what the, what the writer did in this book was he wanted to talk about these three themes. And what he did was he, he sort of anchored each one of these themes to a particular character or characters of the book. So as you, as you get to know the different characters, we're supposed to be asking ourselves the question as the readers, how do these characters teach me something about worship or suffering or justice? And uh, the character that justice revolves around is, is Job there. Um, in, in worship, remember, Satan challenged God as to the reason that we worship. Well, people just worship because God makes their life so good. Take all those good things away and they'll curse you instead of worship you. So, so Satan directly challenges God on the premise of why we worship. And, of course, um, God shows through Job's suffering that that was not indeed why Job worshipped God. We, we worship God because he's worthy of our worship, not because he makes our life so great. That was the first theme we saw there. The second thing we saw was the theme of suffering. And the theology of the three friends goes like this. When we do what's right, God blesses us. When we do what's wrong, God punishes us. It's retributive theology. Uh, or I like to call it vending machine theology. You know, you put the right thing in and you get the right thing out. And uh, part of what the book is designed to do is to show us that that is not accurate theology in understanding suffering. Sometimes people do suffer because of their sin, but that is not the only reason that people suffer. We suffer because of Satan. That's what we see in this book. We suffer because we live in a broken, fallen world. We suffer because of the sins of other people that sin against us. Uh, and ultimately, um, suffering falls under the realm of God's providence where he is using it for the good of his people and the glory of his name. So, so suffering, the theme of suffering revolves around the three friends and it's designed to help us to, to uh, tweak that retributive theology, which isn't true. And then the last issue is the issue of justice because ultimately Job has a problem with God's justice. Ultimately, as, as godly as he is, as righteous as he is, the, the chronic nature of his suffering breaks him down, gets to his heart, and, and what comes out of his heart is accusations against God that he is, in fact, treating Job unjustly. So the book thirdly addresses the topic 
of God's justice. Is God really a just God? And we see all this suffering, all this wickedness in the world. Can God possibly be just in the midst of that? And the book answers that question as well. Now, the middle of all, this is not a hypothetical book. This is, this is not, um, a book of facts, a book of sort of a, a, a scientific type book. You know, here's 18 things we can learn about these things. I don't know. This is an autobiographical book because who is living in the center of all three of these themes? Job himself is, isn't he? He, he is the living, breathing example. He, he, is, he is the tool that God is using to teach us, the readers, all of these themes so he's living right in the middle of all that. Now notice, too, what do all three of those things relate to? What do they relate to? This is the part where you guys jump in. What's that? Our life. It, it does impact our life, sure. But uh, it does include God's sovereignty. But even, even more broadly than that, all those relate to God's character. Right? Why we worship God. That's at the heart of who he is. Uh, is God punishing us every time we do what's wrong? Well, that certainly speaks to the character of God. Is God just or is he unjust? That's huge. So this is really a book about the character of God. Um, and, and just a little footnote on that. There is a sense in which every book of the Bible is about the character of God. Um, always there's theology there that we're designed to learn. But this book is particularly about addressing three areas where we are prone to misunderstand the character of God, especially in the context of suffering. So that's, that's what this book is all about. Now, right now, where we're at in our book, and, and we don't have time to go over the outline of the book here, but we're in this last little section before God steps on the scene of this man, Elihu. And um, get the tapes if, if uh, you want to hear the, the whole story here. But where does Elihu fit in all of this? Remember, Elihu is the young man. He, he hasn't spoken the whole time. He's younger, so he's kind of waiting his turn, being respectful to the older folks that are speaking. And then he comes in, and remember, we see Elihu. Where, where does he fit into all this? Well, he sort of fits in the camp of the three friends because he's going to say, you know what? Uh, God does punish those who do wrong, and he does bless those that do Right. In fact, he says in chapter 36, verse 11, if they hear and serve him, they shall end their days in prosperity and their years in pleasures. Okay. And you look at that section there and you see that same retributive theology. So unfortunately, Elihu falls into the same wrong thinking about suffering that the three friends do. And we go, wow, that's not very good. Why does he show up? Because even though he gets that part of his theology wrong, he gets this part right. He corrects the wrong view of justice. And he gets in Job's kitchen and says, you know what, Job? It is wrong to accuse God of being unjust. God is never unjust. He is the sovereign Lord of the universe. He always does what is right. He is um, righteous in all his ways, as the scripture say. So Elihu serves, I call him the John the Baptist of the book of Job, because what he's doing, he's setting the table for God coming in in chapter 38. And one of the ways he's going to set the table and prepare the way is he's going to put some of the pieces on the table that show Job that he is wrong about accusing God of being unjust.
Okay, so that's kind of a review. Now, and, we, and we've talked about this. We've worked through Elihu. We got through chapter 37 two, three weeks ago, whenever that was. And there was this one verse that I thought I'd come back to because it just struck me. Look at chapter 37, verse 13. And this is one of those pull the car over verses and go, what? Verse 13 of chapter 37. Whether for correction or for his world or for loving kindness, he causes it to happen. And I read that and I went, oh, that's good. What does it mean? <laughs> what, what is that all about? And, and, and I read, the first time I read it, I don't think, I don't think the context hit me. What is the it? What is the it that he causes to happen? What, okay, for those of you that love English, what is the antecedent of the pronoun? Have you had your coffee this morning? I hope you've had coffee. What is it? It's weather. Back up. Uh, verse 11. Also with moisture he loads the thick clouds. He disperses the cloud of his lightning. There's your antecedent. And it, and it, the lightning, changes directions, turning around by his guidance, that it, the lightning, may do whatever he commands on the face of the inhabited earth, whether for correction or for his world or for loving kindness, he causes it, the lightning, the weather, to happen. And I went, we got to talk about this. How many ever heard a sermon on a theology of weather? Me neither, okay? So you pray for me, I'll pray for you, and let's jump into this. This is fascinating. This is fascinating. I, I was on the airplane uh, coming home from a conference yesterday, and I, I'm, I'm typing this. I'm just, you know, just getting into this whole thing. And I look out my window, and there's these clouds all over the place. I remember, Rusty, years ago uh, when you had your biplane, you took me up, and Rusty used to have an old World War II uh, trainer biplane called a Stearman. And uh, I remember you saying, Rusty, how often when you'd go up, it gave you a, a small, maybe a, a, a picture of what God what God, how God must see the world, so to speak, you know, and, and painting that, looking down and seeing it as God were, as it were, looking down. And um, so I'm sitting here, going off on weather and all this, and I'm looking out. There's these clouds all over the place, and it was, it was, it was, it was I was worshiping on the airplane. It was a wonderful experience there. Um, and I had a window seat, which helped a lot. What is weather? What is weather? And I'm going to confine our time just to. These two chapters, okay, we're going to branch out just a little bit. I wish we could do a whole Bible study on weather. Maybe we can do that. I was sitting there searching, and I thought, that would be a really fun study to do sometime. But we're going to just restrain ourselves to, to chapter 37 here. What is weather, okay? Weather is, first of all, a metaphor. It's a metaphor, and I'll show you what I mean. Look at verse 36, chapter 36, verse 29. Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds, the thundering of his pavilion? As Elihu is speaking here in context, there's some weather rolling in, right? And he says in verse 26, Behold, God is exalted and we do not know him. The number of his years is unsearchable. And as he contemplates the, the amazing nature of God and his eternality and his, his infinity and his incomprehensibility, he starts looking at all the weather rolling in, and it just launches him in to this theological discussion about weather. Verse 29, can anyone understand the spreading of his clouds, the thundering of his pavilion? See, weather is a metaphor that shows us of God's incomprehensibility. You look at the weather, and, and we've got chief meteorologists. We've got Doppler radar. We've got satellite systems. We've, we've got, you can get it on your iPhone and radar. We have all this stuff, and... 
How often do weathermen get it wrong? Right? Do, you, do we understand the weather? Not, I mean, we understand a lot more than we did 100 years ago, but not really. And weather becomes a metaphor for the fact that God is beyond us. He is incomprehensible because he runs this whole thing. He knows how it works, and we just kind of marvel at it. But secondly, weather is a metaphor in the sense of God's lordship as creation. Look at verse 32. He covers his hands with the lightning. Isn't that a a picture? He covers his hands with lightning, and he commands it to strike the mark. Why, why does lightning strike a certain place? Because he tells it to strike there. He commands it. He is the Lord of his creation. He runs the whole universe. His creatures do his every bidding. And the weather, it's, it's hard. Because we think of weather as a natural process. That's not the biblical view. Do you understand that? The biblical view is God says, strike there, and the lightning obeys. See, weather is a metaphor. It it, it teaches us something about God. It shows us that he is the Lord of his creation. Look, chapter 37. Just look across the page, verse 10. From the breath of God, ice is made, and the expanse of the waters is frozen. Also with moisture, he loads the thick clouds, and he disperses the cloud of his lightning and it changes directions turning around by his guidance that it may do whatever he commands it he is the lord of the weather he commands the weather it's a metaphor that shows us that god is really the lord he's really the master as creator thirdly we see the weather is a metaphor of god's presence this is interesting look back at verse 36 Uh, In verse 33, it says, Its noise declares his presence. What noise? We'll back up a couple verses. Verse 32, He covers his hands with the lightning and commands it to strike the mark. So so here's the deal. Ready? Whenever you hear thunder, it is a reminder that God is here, that he is present. You say, well, why is that? Because he's commanding it. He's making it happen. So when we hear that, when we see that, we're supposed to go, we live in a universe where God is present. He's there. And see, weather, you see how weather is a metaphor? You see that? It, it, it shows us things about God. It teaches us things about God. Uh, fourthly, it reminds us, as it were, of God's voice. Look at chapter 37, verse uh, 2. Listen closely to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that goes out from his mouth. Under the whole heaven he lets it loose and his lightning to the ends of the earth. After it a voice roars and he thunders with his majestic voice and he does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. God thunders with his voice wondrously, doing great things which we cannot comprehend. He's not saying that God speaks through the lightning. He's saying when thunder cracks and when it, it's one of those things that just jumps, you know, you jump off your couch, it's so loud. That is a reminder of the greatness of the power of God's very voice. He thunders like, like weather's a metaphor. 
Sixthly, it's a metaphor of God's wisdom and perfect knowledge. Look at verse 16 of chapter 37. He says to Job, now remember, in context, Elihu is telling Job, he's trying to communicate to Job, Job, you're not God. You're not even like God. And he says in verse 16, Do you know about the layers of the thick clouds, the wonders of one perfect in knowledge? See, that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to look at the weather and see how all this works and go, Man, God must be perfect in his knowledge. He must be wondrously wise to be able to make this happen, to bring this together. And again, we understand so much more about weather than we did even even 25 years ago. But we don't have a clue the way he runs this. And so we're, see, we're supposed to, you know what most of us do? We either ignore the weather or we get frustrated by it. Ah, I can't go out here and, and do that today. It's raining, you know. And I, I uh, flew into um, Kentucky this last week and I like to go out and get a good jog in. Of course, it's pouring rain. I'm going, rah, 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 rah. I can't go run. I hate treadmills and, you know, you can't do that. And most of us get frustrated at the weather or we ignore it. And God's saying, the biblical view is saying, no, 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 no. Weather is supposed to be this ongoing metaphor that teaches us things about God. It's Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. It, it teaches us about God's greatness. It also teaches us about God's power and his might. Look at verse 22. Out of the north comes golden splendor. Around God is awesome majesty, the Almighty. We cannot find Him. He is exalted in power. You guys know anything about lightning? Why does lightning kill you if it hits you, typically? It's a huge, huge amount of current. Um, why does that happen? We got nine volts, right? A little nine volt. This huge, huge current of electricity that just happens. It just happens. It, it destroys trees. It kills people. It it knocks over buildings. It, it does. How, how did tornadoes? We had a, we had a terrible tornado season in the Midwest this year, didn't we? And wiping out whole cities. Or hurricanes that take out whole harbors, whole areas of the country. The power of that. We can't even imagine the power of that. And that is a metaphor of God's power. That's a speck of dust in the scale of God's power. Do you see that? We don't have a device to say, oh, let's put God's power on it. Okay, God's power is this big. But God uses the weather. And he says, every time there's a thunderstorm, every time there's a tornado, every time there's a hurricane, and we're sitting in there in awe of all of this power and, and greatness, it reminds us that God is great and powerful. It also, if we can just leave Job for a couple of minutes here, reminds us, it's a metaphor of God's power, I'm sorry, his anger and judgment. Hold your place in Job and flip to the right to Nahum. One of my favorite of the minor prophets. You've you got to go past Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. Keep going. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. And um, this is a, a, a very interesting book. 
but and I wish we could unpack it all, but I just want you to get a sense of the metaphor that the prophet Nahum uses as he talks about God's judgment. Nahum is about the judgment of Nineveh. Remember Nineveh? Nahum is Jonah part two, uh, because it, it, it's the second half. It's the rest of the story of the book of Jonah and the Ninevites. And what God is doing in Nahum is he is pronouncing judgment on Nahum, and then we will actually see God's judgment come to pass. So here's God. He is coming in judgment. What is that like? What is God's judgment like? Well, we can sit here and imagine it, but guess what metaphor Scripture uses to help us to understand that? It's the weather. Look at verse 2 of Nahum chapter 1. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries. Actually, the English goofs it all up there. The Hebrew text actually says three times right in a row. It's like holy, holy, holy. It's the threefold repetition. God is avenging. God is avenging. God is avenging. Emphasizing it. Making it emphatic. He reserves wrath, verse 2, for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Well, what's that like? What's God like when he comes in judgment and vengeance and power and wrath? Look at verse 3. In a whirlwind and a storm is his way. Do you see that? It's like, a, it's like the worst storm you've ever seen coming. The clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him. The hills dissolve because of him. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence. The world and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken up by him. You do not want to be in the path of the judgment of God when it comes. It's like the worst storm you've ever seen. It's like being out in a field with a five-mile class five tornado coming at you. That's what it's like. See, see, the Bible uses weather as a metaphor to teach us things about God that, that we, we can't fathom. But the weather is this amazing picture of what God is like. Do you, are you tracking with me? You see how this works? And, and Elihu is just waxing eloquent. Let me show you one more thing, one more area. Uh, flip back to the book of Isaiah, chapter 1. And again, I wish we could go through the whole Bible and just look at all the ways that the Bible uses weather as a metaphor, but we'll just content ourselves with a few here. Look at Isaiah chapter 1. You know these verses. Isaiah 1 starts off with the same way Nahum does. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. You have sinned, Israel. You have turned away, Judah. Your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. It's desolation. It's overthrown. It's like Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 9 says. He says in verse 11, What are your multiplied sacrifices to me? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams, the fat of the fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of your bulls and lambs or goats. 
when you come to appear before me. Verse 13, don't bring me your worthless offerings anymore. Incense is an abomination to me. Verse 14, God tells the Israelites, I hate your new moon festivals, your feasts. They are a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Why? Because they had turned away from their God. Their hearts were far from Him. They were just going through the religious motions. And yet, and yet, look at this, verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, God says, in in the council, as it were, of the Trinity itself. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be made white as... Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent, in other words, if you repent... And turn back to me. See, weather is also a picture, a metaphor of God's redemption. When you look out, those we usually get one or two storms that bring some snow. Maybe you're from a different part of the country where you get that more regularly. When we look out and we see the whole world. I remember we were <laughs> the one year we decided to go to California for Christmas a couple of years ago. And... Um, I'm at the park next to my parents' house. We brought the kids out. and I'm at the park, you know, down the street from my parents' house, pushing my kids on the swing. I'm in shorts and a T-shirt. My neighbor texts me a picture looking across the street at our house, and it's just covered in white. It was that storm we got a couple years ago on Christmas Day or day before. You remember that? Everything is several inches of snow. And you can't see the ground. I couldn't see my lawn. I couldn't see plants, greenery. It was all white. And God says, that's what I will make your sin like if you repent and turn back to me. Trust me. See, weather's a metaphor. It's, It's designed to teach us things that otherwise we couldn't learn. I mean, we could go in a textbook. We, we, could, we could open up a textbook, right? God is incomprehensible. Say it with me, class. Okay, great. God is the Lord of Creator. Yeah, say it with me. This is great. Uh, God is there. God's voice is great. God is wisdom and, and, and has perfect... We can do that, but it doesn't make the point. So God makes the point with weather. Okay, weather's a metaphor. Secondly... Not only is weather a metaphor, weather is a picture of God's providence. It's a picture of God's providence. Flip back to Colossians chapter 1. I want to show you something here. And I get a little bit excited when I talk about this, so um, I hope you'll excuse that. But um, I had the privilege years ago of teaching a physics class at the Master's College. And that was one of the best things to help me think about the providence of God. Let me tell you why. Because I was in a college that said, we want you to teach the biblical view of science. Okay. Now, when I was in school, we learned laws like this. And forgive me, but I can't help it. We learned stuff like this. You remember that? You know what that is? Very good. It's Newton's second law. Force equals mass times acceleration, right? Some of you students and pilots and whatnot, you're tracking with me here, okay? And we, physicists love laws. You know, there's Coulomb's law, there's Newton's laws, there's thermodynamic laws, there's Bernoulli's equations, and all all this fun stuff we learn because what physicists love to do is mathematically model creation, okay? Now look at Colossians 1 with me, and we'll come back to that in just a minute. 
um, verse, Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. For by him, by context, he's talking about Christ, okay? By him, by Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him, okay? Christ created everything, he did the creating, and he made creation for himself, is what that's saying. Verse 17, and he, Christ, is before all things, and this is the verse, I love this verse, and in him all things hold together. Follow me on this. Christ made everything, but the picture of creation is not he makes everything and then he walks off the stage and says, okay, everything's just going to run on its own. This verse says he not only makes it, but he sustains it. He runs it every day. He's, he's not only the, the, the divine creator, he's the divine operator of creation. He runs it. He upholds it. He, he keeps it together. He holds it together. Uh, flip uh, just a few pages to the right to Hebrews chapter 1. How does he run this whole thing? How does he, how does he keep it going? Look at Hebrews uh, chapter 1. This is another great verse. And again, I just get wound up about this because this is, this is such a wonderful um, perspective to to gain. Hebrews chapter 1, how does Christ uphold his creation? It says, chapter 1, verse 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, many portions, and in many ways, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. There it is, just like Colossians 1. Uh, And I love this. Listen listen to this. Verse 3, and he is the radiance of of his glory. Christ is the radiance, the expression, the, the visual representation of God the Father himself, of his glory. He is the exact representation of his nature. He is 100% God. He is deity. And here it is. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. How does he run the universe? He commands it. He speaks it. The, the, you, know, the, you know why this is true? You know why this, do you know why? Uh, what, for those of you that are tracking with me here, what's gravity if we throw gravity in there? Remember this? 9.81 meters per second squared. Remember that? Or for, for us Americans, it's 32 feet per second. You got that? That's, that's the rate at which things tend to fall toward the earth. Why is that? Because every time somebody does this, God says 32 feet per second. Boom! Like that. The word of his power. He upholds it. He runs it. He creates it. He sustains it. And, well, we'll talk about this in a minute, but, but we, what we typically think of as the laws of nature, all we're doing is mathematically modeling his providence. That's all we're doing. We're saying, God runs this thing so precisely with such great precision and detail and faithfulness. He runs it so exactly. I can put a math equation up there, and it will predict what happens. But the, 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 the danger of that is I tend to think, well, that's just what happens, right? That's just a law. No, 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 no. It's, it's a math model that says God runs the universe precisely every day. Let me ask you a question. If he runs the universe that precisely with nature, with creation, do you think we can trust him in much more important things? 
Do you think he's faithful in other things? Like, oh, I don't know, our salvation? It's a picture, guys. It's a metaphor. Um, Weather is a picture of providence. Uh, We see that. uh, Flip back to Job. Flip back to Job 37. You don't know how hard it is to, to not keep going here on the on the math there, but we'll we'll just stop. We'll stop now. For some of you are going, no, no, please stop. Yeah, Rod, Roger's with me. Roger's ready to go. Okay, so you're with me. All right. Well, we'll if you have any questions on math, come up and talk to Don. Because remember, physicists tolerate the math because they like to do science, right? Like engineers tolerate math because they like to solve problems. If you're a math person, you do math for the sheer joy of it, right? Okay. Amen. All right. I had some guys like that in college, and, and that was challenging. But anyway, um, look, look at all the examples we get of God's providence. Evaporation and condensation. Look at chapter 36, verse 26. Uh, I'm sorry, 36, verse 27. Um, he draws up the drops of water. That's evaporation. They distill rain from the midst, which the clouds pour down. They drip upon man abundantly. That's condensation, right? We see those processes going on. What about atmospheric dynamics, what we would call thermodynamics, fluids and temperatures and pressures and, and, and how all this stuff works together in, in the thermodynamic part, things like temperature and pressure and the wind. The Bible talks about that. Look at chapter 36, verse 29. Can anyone understand the spreading out of the clouds? That's a thermodynamic process. The thundering of his pavilion. Look at chapter 37, verse 9. Out of the south comes the storm, and out of the north comes the cold. That's really funny because it kind of puts you in the time and culture. Where I grew up, if you get a north wind, it's hot because it comes out through, down through the desert. They call it Santa Ana winds because they're the high winds that come down through the high desert, and they're warm winds. Most other parts of the country, if you get a wind from the north, it comes from Canada, which is cold. Atmospheric dynamics. See, that's a picture of God's providence. How does that happen? Because he runs it. He commands it to happen. Thunder and lightning, we talked about that. God commands that. He, he makes it happen. He spreads out his lightning above him. He covers the depths of the sea. For by these he judges peoples. He gives food in abundance. He covers his hands with the lightning and commands it to strike the mark. All of that is God running his universe precisely, so precisely you can model it with a math equation. Precipitation, we saw that. Condensation, the rain falls, the snow comes. Verse uh, 10 and 11 talk about snow. What about even hibernation? We don't typically think about that as a part of the weather, but it, hibernation is very related to seasons, isn't it? That, that, that's the cue, right? Verse 8, the, the beast goes into its lair and remains in its den. And, and Elihu says to Job, why do they do that? How do they know? Because God commands them. God commands them. You say, but, but we can look at laws and they, things fall the law. Yeah, that's just how God runs it. See, see, the danger here is I become a practical atheist when I get too much into this. I tend to think things just happen because we know how they happen instead of saying, no, 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 things happen precisely because we serve a precise God who's always on the mark. Now, what we think of as the laws of nature, this is what I was getting at a minute ago, are really just the patterns of his providence. Or if you want it another way, it's the schematic of his sustaining grace. That's what weather is. That's what, that's what natural laws are. It's just 
taking how God runs the universe so precisely every day and saying, hey, we can see some patterns or we can make a schematic. We can throw a math model up there that explains this. And the danger here, the danger here is we can very easily confuse how with why. Now, I went to a conference on psychiatric disorders this week. And did you know what? Psychiatric labels and God's and, and weather and math and stuff like this have something in common. Did you know that? Psychiatric labels and what we're talking about here have something in common. And, and here's, here, here's what I mean. If I say somebody has ADHD, what is that? Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, okay? What is that? You know what that is? It's a list of symptoms. If you have this system, this symptom, 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 then you're given a label, ADHD, okay? The, The danger is... The danger is what is a descriptive label is often used in popular culture as a diagnosis that that shows causation. Well, of course I wasn't paying attention to you, teacher. I'm ADHD. And they're saying the label is the cause for their behavior when in fact it's just a description of it. You follow me on that? And all psychological labels, they're descriptions. They're not labels that give you causation. Well, the danger of this is, this looks like I understand why gravity works, or I understand why uh, uh, Newton's second law works the way it does. But you know what? This is just the how. This is just how it works. Science does not explain why. And the Bible tells us why. Why? Because he upholds all things by the word of his power. In him, he created all things, and all things are held together. He commands it, and it happens. He says to the lightning, strike there. Boom! And it hits there every single time. The Bible tells us the why. So don't confuse how, which science is wonderful about, right? Don't confuse that with why. Only God tells us the why. Number three. Weather is a divine tool. And this, is, this goes back to that verse that, that struck me uh, as I came back to consider this chapter. Weather is a, is a divine tool. Did you know that? Look back at chapter 37, verse 13, that, that verse that I read to you a minute ago. It says that weather, specifically by context lightning, verse 13 of chapter 37, is for correction or for his world or for loving kindness. See, weather is a tool. It, first of all, illustrates God's provision. And we see that back in chapter 36, verse 31. Look look at that there. 36, verse 31. He says, By these, he judges peoples, and he gives food in abundance. Okay, so by the weather, by the way God sustains his universe, he gives food. That makes sense, right? Rain has to come. Precipitation has to come. The seasons have to happen in order for food to grow on the earth. And, I, and that's how I take, if you look at chapter 37, verse 13, when he says, for this world, do you see that there? For this world. I take that to mean God uses weather to provide whatever the world needs. It's provision. The second thing we see that weather is used of by God to do, is for correction and judgment. Look at verse 13a there. Weather for correction. Do you guys know literally? It's literally for the rod. And that immediately makes you think of Proverbs, right? Where the rod is used 
for, for discipline, for correction, for training. Now, we know, let me ask you a question. What, think about a time in the Bible when God used weather specifically as an act of his judgment. Okay, Noah. Okay? The ten plagues. Remember the hail and the ten plagues that broke the trees in half, the trunks of trees? Sure. Anyone else? What's that? Okay. Okay, that, that wouldn't be a normal weather thing, but that would be one time where he would use water or when he parted the Red Sea, sure. Yeah, I had in mind Pharaoh and, and Noah in particular. But yeah, we, we see that, don't we? God sometimes uses weather as a divine tool of his judgment. Now, a footnote on that. Unless he tells us that that's what he's doing, we should not automatically conclude that what that hurricane did, what that earthquake did, what that tornado did is in fact God's judgment. Because we don't know that for sure. We know that he can and sometimes does use that as a tool of his judgment. Sometimes, sometimes it's, it's not a tool of judgment. It's a tool of, of his um, correction or work or provision. The last thing we see here is of his loving kindness and grace. Look at verse 13c. Whether for correction or for his world or for his loving kindness, he causes it to happen. You know what the reality is? Um, weather is kind of like health. Most of the time, most of us enjoy good. Right? Most of the time, most of us enjoy good weather. Some of us that grew up in Southern California, even more so. But we won't talk about that now. And then when bad weather comes... It's like, what's the deal? I was going to go out running today. I was going to go play golf today. My kid's going to play soccer today. Or, or even worse, this tornado destroyed my home and destroyed my property. And we forget that every day, most of the time, what we enjoy on a day like today, where it's going to be 82, is God's grace. Weather is a reminder of his daily grace that he shows us every moment of every day. See, weather is not something we're supposed to be frustrated about. Weather is something we're supposed to go, why does God give me all this grace most of the time? Why? That's just what he does. Because he's a gracious God. The last thing I want you to see, actually the second last thing, we've got to wrap this up here. Weather has a doxological purpose. Weather provides regular revelation. You notice that? Verse 7, he seals the hand of every man Now listen to the doxological purpose, chapter 37, verse 7, that all men may know his work. What is that? It's God's goal in weather, his doxological goal. Weather, like everything else in creation, is supposed to show everybody, hey guys, I'm God, I'm real. Look and see. And as Elihu unpacks this for Job, he says, Job, this whole thing is supposed to show us that all men may know of God's work. It's it's regular revelation. And you know what? If you read the chapter, we don't have time to do it now. If you read the whole chapter, one of the themes you get is God does all this. You know why? Because we can't see him. I asked my kids this one time. How do you know God's real if you can't see him? All right? Bible says that. No one has seen God at any time. Great. Well, how do we know he's real? The answer is he does all this stuff every day in creation that shouts, even though you can't see me, I'm real. And that's what weather is. It's regular revelation. It's Psalm 19. It's general revelation. But secondly, 
It also involves specific regular reminders. And this, in context now, this is why Elihu is saying all this. Why is Elihu going on this big thing on the weather? Here's why. He wants Job to understand two things. Look at the end of chapter 37. Okay? Chapter 37, verse 18. He says to Job, Can you with him spread out the skies? Strong as a molten mirror. And he gets kind of sarcastic here. Well, then teach us what we shall say to him. We cannot arrange our case because of darkness. He says to Job, Job, you know what? All this shows us that you're not God. You're not God. And you know what? We aren't either. The second thing, the second regular reminder and this is, again, in context, what Elihu is trying to communicate. to Job. See, Elihu's not just given Job a weather lesson. He has a very specific goal. Here's his goal. That he is awesome in majesty, almighty, exalted in power. Let's just read the verses. Verse 22. Out of the north comes golden splendor. Around God is awesome majesty. He is the almighty. We cannot find him. He is exalted in power. God is great. God is powerful. God is awesome. And because of that, Job, look at the end of the verse. He will not do violence to justice or abundant righteousness. All of this is exhibit A in the courtroom to show Job that God is not an unjust God. You say, why is that? If he's the creator, if he's the almighty if he's awesome in majesty and splendor, if he is all-powerful, if he's the guy that runs this whole thing, guess what? By his very nature, he decides what is right and what is wrong. By his very nature. And if that's his nature, if that's what he does, of course he's not going to violate that. There's not a law higher than God. God is the law. God is the standard of righteousness and justice. And if he does it, of course it's just. Of course it's right. Because he's the creator. Do you see that? So all this weather lesson comes down to be the, the testifying evidence against Job's accusation that God is unjust. Do you see that? And finally, um, look at verse 14 with me. What are we supposed to do with all this? What do we do with weather? We can get frustrated by it. We can ignore it. Or we can do what the Bible commands us to do. Look at verse 14. Listen to this, O Job. Stand and consider the wonders of God. Let me ask you a question. Do you make the occasion of weather an occasion to regularly stand and consider the amazing glory, power, character, greatness, sovereignty, and wonderful providence of God. The Bible commands us every day to look out and say, Hallelujah! What a Savior! What a God! What a Creator! Okay, so let's, let's, um, let's let God convict us and change our theology of weather. Okay? Let's pray. Father, what a... Uh, fun time in your word this was to just talk about something that uh, we often don't think about uh, in your word, but it's just all over this text. Father, we are amazed as we do stand and consider and wonder of how amazingly 
you run this universe, how you provide for your creatures, how you sustain us, and how you're so gracious to provide and and to uphold us each day. Father, I pray that um, like all areas of our heart and our theology, we need refining here. And rather than be frustrated or to ignore whether uh, that we would see it in the way that you intended it to be as a metaphor of who you are, as a reminder of your providence, as the divine tool that it is, and as an occasion to stand in wonder and awe of our amazing Lord and Creator. Father, we love you. Thank you for this time in your word, and pray that you would help us to do that this day. In Christ's name, amen.